0: Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gauthier. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Without a doubt, the most important mission of our lifetimes will be regenerating this planet and creating a new culture based on care and stewardship for all life. But it can be hard to know where to start. After more than 150 episodes of speaking to leaders and innovators in the regenerative fields around the world, and working with clients and organizations to help them reach their regenerative goals, I've compiled many lists of essential skills and steps that anyone can take today to begin their journey towards a brighter future for themselves, their families and communities, and for the ecosystems that support them. Every two weeks, I'll send you a new regenerative skill that you can develop and expand on in your own life right away. What's more is that I'm creating a community of skill builders like you who are sharing their results and stories of success to inspire you towards greater action. You can sign up right now in the show notes for this episode or on the homepage at AbundantEdge.com. Start your week off right by building your skills for a regenerative future. Hello and welcome everybody to the last episode in the Regenerative Agriculture series. Now, normally I would release a special episode at the end of a series that summarizes the research that I did for the interviews and the main points of the guests, but at the moment I'm putting my time and energies into some new projects and a whole new podcast launch which will begin at the beginning of next year. Now, After this episode, I'll be releasing one more series dedicated to waterway generation before changing the format and direction of this show. Now I'll be giving sneak peeks of the new podcast in weeks to come, so keep an eye out for some of those experiments because I'd love to hear your feedback and opinions as I explore how this show can be a more effective educational resource for all of you wonderful listeners who've joined me as I've built this show up from a little passion project while I was creating a demonstration farm with my former colleagues in Guatemala to an educational platform with listeners all around the world and more than 100,000 downloads from this season alone. So I won't say any more than that just now, but I'll look forward to hearing from you as I open the platform up to more collaboration and interaction with you listeners in the weeks and months to come. So let's jump right in. Today's guest is James Euliger, the author of Beginning Seed Saving for the Home Gardener. And though this certainly isn't a talk about farm scale seed saving and propagation, I thought it was essential to include in this series. In my opinion, seed saving and selective breeding is one of the best ways that anyone, with even a small yard or garden, can participate in ensuring the food security of future generations. We live in a time when governments have deemed it possible to patent seeds and own genetic information. This not only threatens the sovereignty of our seeds, but every aspect of our food system as life itself is now able to be patented and owned. Yet we all still have the capacity to grow and save seeds that keep the genetic history that is the foundation of so many cultures alive and evolving, not through technological genetic tampering, but through the stewardship and care that selects for adaptation and resilience. While this is a topic that I'm looking forward to exploring from a lot of different perspectives and advanced applications, James gives a wonderful talk in this episode that directly speaks to the novice gardener. Now in this session, we'll break down just how easy it is to get started saving your own seeds and how powerful of an action that it actually is. We cover all the essentials like knowing when the seeds are ready to harvest, the best way to store them for good germination rates, and we even get into the more intermediate steps like working with biennials and plant varieties that don't like to grow true from seed if they're cross-pollinated. James does a great job at making this practice accessible and fun, and because I'm so excited to get more people saving and breeding their own seeds, I've teamed up with New Society Publishers to give away a free copy of the book. So if you want to win a copy of Beginning Seed Saving for the Home Gardener, just message me through our dedicated Facebook group called Abundant Edge Weekly Regenerative Skills and write a post about why you want to save your own seeds. I'll select a winner one week after this episode comes out, and I'll send a hard copy of the book to you if you live in the U.S. or Canada, or a digital copy if you live anywhere else in the world. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. So with the intro out of the way, let's jump into the last episode of the Regenerative Agriculture series, and I'll hand things over to James. Hey, James, thanks so much for taking time to be on the podcast today.
1: How are you doing? I'm well. How are you, Oliver?
0: Can't complain. It's, uh, it's getting towards the end of May here in Spain, and this is my first year being here this time of the season. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's like summer's already been here for a month. How are things
1: in northern New England? Oh, really? Well, it's just like that in Vermont too. Yeah, summer came rather suddenly about a week ago here.
0: Oh yeah, I can imagine that transition comes all of a sudden. It's like that for my brothers in uh, in Minnesota as well. But hey, so look uh, before we get started going into a deeper dive on seed saving and the contents of your book could you tell our listeners a little bit about your personal background and what motivated you to write the book on seed saving when there are already so many?
1: Yeah. Well, um, th- uh, thank you. The, um, so I'm a, i am um, I grew up in uh, Western Pennsylvania outside Pittsburgh. Um, and we honestly didn't uh, do a lot of gardening growing up though. My, my father had uh, this uh, this family legends that he would tell about growing up um, kind of as a poor coal mining family in western Pennsylvania and you know, uh, feeding themselves from their garden, et cetera. and that always really captured my imagination. Um, so when I became adult and got some of my own space, I started to um, grow uh, some of my own food with um, with a lot of interest in in figuring out how I could be, uh, as independent as possible. And you know, in my mind, that's an important um, word to dwell on there because I actually have long ago decided that none of us are as independent as maybe we'd like to be or think we can be, but acknowledging some of the interdependence and um, really thinking about how we can maybe take ownership of some things that we've kind of left to industry over the last century or, or so. Um, so, um, as we got a little bit more space, um, we, I started to think about what else could I do with my garden? And I, I had this ongoing discussion with my father around why he grew onions from onion sets. I said, dad, it's, what, what's the big deal? You know, you, you've got a, you've got a little onion and you grow a big onion. I don't, I don't understand it. And the the counterpoint was, um, well, you, somebody gives you a little seed and then you make a big onion. What's the difference? And, um, like I have many times in my life, I, I said, gosh, you know, my father's right. Um, I'm not sure if I told him that yet to date, cause that's, you know, I gotta, I gotta keep him, uh, accountable there a little bit, but, uh, I guess now the cat's out of the bag. He's going to hear about it. But yes, yeah, yeah, you gotta be dad. careful
0: with that praise. You don't want it to get away from you.
1: <laughs> I know. Right. So dad, you were right. If you're listening, you were right, dad, about so many things. Um, but um, so I thought, well, OK, what if you got a seed and then got an onion and then got a seed and then got another onion? Now, that's that's a little bit different. Um, and then the other thing that I was noticing, I was part of a community garden and um, people would you know how, um, how people often do they buy their seed packet and they mark the end of the row with that seed packet so they know what they planted. and you know, the, you know, some giant sunflower, et cetera, in the end, at the end of the seed row. And there in that row would be giant sunflowers. And then year after year, I would notice in the, in the field around the, uh, around the the garden, well, there were tons and tons of giant sunflowers. <laughs> so I thought, <laughs> well, why are we, why are we making our annual offering to seeds to, uh to the seed company? Um, why can't we just, you know, cut out the middleman there? Um, at the same time, um, I was learning a lot about gardening and I, was, I had so many local heroes. I mean, Vermont's a wonderful place to learn about gardening, right? There are, anybody you talk to will have an opinion um, on how to do this or that. It was a lot of water cooler conversations with coworkers. Um, but what was interesting is how people who I revered Greatly to grow whatever kind of beautiful tomato in our hard, cold climate um, they well seed saving they would say that you got to know what you 're doing there, and, and people would often shy away from it and it, it became um, it became somewhat of a a stone I wanted to uncover I said well it can 't be all that that uh, mysterious um, at the same time, I started going to um, uh, the Maine Organic Farmer and Gardener Association. Many people, um, even internationally, might be familiar with this. It's called the Common Ground Fair. And um, this is a huge 10,000 people in rural Maine uh, every fall come. And, um, and it's, it's a wonderful vibe. It's a great place. And, and they offer um, talks on how to do this or that in homesteading or small farming. And so I started going to the seed saving talk um, and met... Um, who is in many ways my mentor, his name's Will Bonzel. He's written a lot about seed saving and et cetera. And Will, um, I learned so much from Will about seed saving and I tried it out and I made all sorts of uh, mistakes and uh, a, few, a few small victories. Um, and then one year I went and Will wasn't there. And I don't, I, to this day, I actually, I should ask him, but I don't know where he was that year, but I said, oh my gosh, nobody's talking about seed saving. Um, somebody has to talk about seed saving at this huge Northern New England agricultural fair. And so the next year I put an application. I said, look, I, you know, I've been doing this for a little while. Uh, it's gonna be the very basics. Um, I'm just gonna share my experience. And, um, and they said, well, sure, yeah, we need somebody to talk about seed saving. And, um, and then I ran into Will, Will Kane next year, and he said, well, we gotta team up. You'll talk about beginning seed saving and I'll talk about advanced seed saving. And he and I have been doing that for, I don't know, it seems like about a decade or so, so far. And um, I've learned a lot more in that time. And um, one person um, who I met at that fair uh, asked me, well, had you ever thought about putting your thoughts down and uh, into a book? And I said, well, who would publish that? And she said, well, I would. Um, And that was Ingrid from the, from New Society Publishers. And so we we came up with a book and and it's very, the goal to answer, I guess, your second question of why would we write this? The goal and the purpose of the book is really to be very accessible. So it's not, there there are good manuals that are not this book for really how to save seed in a commercial way, in a way that ensures very um, high degrees of purity, that really to avoid any sort of contamination, and those are all good things, and they're things that home gardeners wanna do. The problem is, is that when you're optimizing seed saving at a industrial scale, or maybe even a, a small seed, sa- seed farm scale, there are some things you're not gonna do that are permissible really, in my opinion, for the home gardener as long as they know what they're doing. Um, so you'll read, and we can get more into the details, but that you should never save cabbage seeds unless you have you know, 200 cabbage seeds because cabbage, cabbages don't do well with small populations. The thing is though, maybe you're the only person with a certain rare type of cabbage seed. Um, in that case, even if you can save four cabbages, which by the way, that's, there's some real reasons why that's not a good idea but four might be better than saving zero um, in what it does for saving biodiversity in our planet and et cetera. Mm-hmm. So what I really wanted to do was talk about what you could save on a very small scale, because it's usually size scale that's the problem with, with uh, in the home garden. And also talk about where you might be able to um, do some things in the home garden that maybe farmers can't do, but we can leverage our home gardens to to take advantage of some of the kind of smaller plots that we have that might overcome some of the weaknesses. So that's really what the book addresses. And it's designed, it's not laid out in a way that's botanical. It's really laid out by difficulty level, to be honest. Um, And people, at first people, when they look at it, they might be, That might not seem um, logical, but it's really like if you've never done it before, just start with the first set of um, the first chapter. And if you start there, then, you know, the the fourth chapter might be overwhelming. But if you if you do it for a couple years or even a year, um, the fourth chapter is going to seem like the logical next place to go. So that's how it's laid out. And that was kind of the logic behind the book.
0: Yeah, I really like that aspect of the book and how it kind of walks people through from beginning all the way up to an aspirational set. And you also said a lot of things there that, I mean, I'd love to highlight because they're so relevant to where we're at as a society globally right now, especially the one about resilience and independence. And so many people looking around at the system that they rely on for food and for other necessities And seeing the cracks in it as it's been really challenged in this crisis situation. I mean, I'm sure you've heard about a lot of the seed suppliers and companies being completely sold out as people kind of rush to try and start their gardens and do all of these basic things for themselves that we had just sort of ignored or taken for granted would get done for us by the economic global machine and realizing that if we don't start to reinvest in some of these basic skills and seed saving is certainly one of them, we we could really find ourselves lacking when events like this occur. How have you seen kind of a response from the community that you're connected to reach out for this information and look to kind of, I guess, reestablish some independence and resilience in their own lives and processes?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a great question. And I think the first thing I would say that I've observed is um, a lot of our uh, smaller and local seed companies have really stepped up and um, that's one of the places where that um, resiliency starts um, is, um, you know, there's, there's big agribusiness, there's uh, small people doing it themselves. And then there's, there's small companies that are trying to do r- the right thing for their customers. Um, and I've, I have no relationship with these seed companies, but I've seen High Mowing Seed, for example, has done a great job um, uh, trying to meet their customers' design- demand. As a matter of fact, I, I uh, even saw that they, in the face of the current crisis, even were able to donate some seeds to our local organic um, farming association. So um, that's the strength and resiliency that I think some of those small companies bring us. Fedco Seeds is another one um, uh, who's really, in they're based in Maine, they've really done a great job. The question about how to um, engage the community response is a really good one, and it's one that I'm actively thinking about right now because even people who I might have had conversations with in the community in the past who or even I'll, I'll speak to myself. This is something I enjoy. I think it's important, but there's a whole new way when that I think about it in a time of scarcity. So if, if we're, if we're interested in this before and, and now this scarcity brings it to a whole new level, how do we take advantage of that? So, um, I'm really interested in my own community um, in figuring out how to um, start talking to people about putting a few of those seeds by. There's some pretty easy things you could do, and this is a great time of year to talk about it. Um, to make sure that, say, hey, you know what? Don't pick that whole row of green beans. Leave a couple plants at the end and let them go to seed when you're done, because um, you know you might really want those seeds next next spring. Um, so I think getting the word out is a we really need to take advantage of that right now.
0: Now, though your book focuses on seed saving and it's definitely kind of what we're going to highlight here, it certainly isn't the only way that plants reproduce. So let's first break down the most common ways to propagate plants to our listeners so that they know what we're talking about. If we mention some jargon and some new terms as we dive deeper into this chat.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so the, the big divide is vegetative and sexual propagation, right? So vegetative propagation is really when you're taking some part of the plant to turn it into a new individual plant um, without um, that will be genetically identical to the parent, right? So there's no exchange of genetic material and there's there's basically no sex, right? And so um there's a lot of plants that do that. Garlic is a good example. Potatoes are another one. We just plant new potatoes. Um, apples, you take an apple, a cutting of the tree you want. Um, and sometimes it's confusing because these things um, largely bear seed as well. Obviously, apples bear seed. But if you plant a um, Northern Spy apple um, seed, so basically you're going to have Northern Spy be the mother of that apple, but you don't know who the father is um and so there'll be some genetics happening there so you don't know what the offspring is going to be however if you graft a northern spy apple branch onto a root of a different tree you're going to get northern spy genetics right so that's the idea there's no exchange of genetic material um so that's that's vegetative propagation and we could talk a little bit more about that if people are interested um i mean the, sh- the short story about vegetative propagation is the hardest thing about it is disease propagation so with with potatoes are the best example, right? If, if you, uh, if you uh, plant your uh, potatoes from last year, the chance that you're keeping some blight spores on those potatoes or a number of viruses that can collect on potatoes is very high. And when, they, when you buy seed potatoes, they test for those things. So that's, that's the hardest thing about vegetative propagation. So, so most of the book and most seed saving activities uh, directed towards uh, sexual propagation, Um, and, uh, kind of some of the different aspects of what you need to know about your plants and their sexual behaviors and reproductive behaviors, if you will, um, that can help you, uh, save seed.
0: Yeah. And it gets a little bit trickier too, when you realize that a lot of plants reproduce through multiple methods. So like the garlic you mentioned, it does put out seed, even though most people don't propagate it that way, or, for example, like the fig trees that are all over here in Spain. They they put out tons of seed in their fruit, but you won't be able to get a tree from those seeds. They don't they're not really viable whereas they continue to spread over when their branches get all heavy and touch the ground and then put out roots when those those branches enter the ground and then they just kind of spread that way. I've even seen whole groves of fig trees that all started from one central point. And so Within that, let's, like you said, focus on the sexual production methods, and start with the really easy stuff, and talk about some of the common plants that you can just plant their seeds and more or less get the exact same plant that you are looking for.
1: Yeah, sure. So the the these are the 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 friendliest seeds for the home gardener, and it's really a class of um, plants um, that are what we call inbreeding. And before we get to the plants themselves, I think it's important to talk about inbreeding versus outbreeding. That's kind of a vocabulary term um i I don't really use that in a in a very extensive way in the book, but I think it's important to understand the term and the concept um, so um and I speak in in um human analogies because it's a lot you know people people understand the human piece, so um you know it's it's not necessarily for the bashful but it's for a good reason um because it helps us uh helps us understand. So the, um, the, the easiest way started with humans is to think of, think of inbreeding versus outbreeding this way. Humans are, are outbreeders. And what that means is we like a large genetic population for our offspring to do well. So the, the example I often give is um, if a dozen of us um, just got fed up with how things are and we went to a remote island and we started a colony, And nobody came into that or out of that colony for hundreds of years. Um, You know, and we started having children. Our children would be fine, Um, but at some point our grandchildren and great-grandchildren, there would be some problems with inbreeding, certain genetic, uh, uh, uncommon genetic conditions um, would start to emerge because people couldn't help but um, having children with their own relations. Um, and, uh, obviously that that's not good for humans. It turns out for plants, this is an okay thing in certain situations, not all of them. And those plants are good for the home garden because they, they can tolerate the small population of your home garden. As a matter of fact, some of those plants are, um, even receptive to their own pollen. So they don't even have to bother with exchanging pollen from, from other individuals, they just accept their own pollen. So um, those are easy plants to, to propagate. So uh, peas and beans are the, are the classics. Um, and lettuce is another really easy one. Um, a lot of us who are trying to grow lettuce for food often uh, grow seeds by mistake if it's hot and dry and we don't water our lettuce uh, in time or if we you know, have a busy week at work, and uh, especially as it gets hot, um, so that's the first, first time I saved lettuce seed was by accident. We went to Alaska for a couple of weeks and came back and there was lettuce seed. Um, so sometimes not saving seed is, is, is the challenge. Um, tomatoes, um, are pretty easy as well. And then some of the, the selfers selfers is maybe another name for, uh, inbreeding plants that will accept their own pollen. Some of them get a little trickier. Peppers are a good example. Peppers are a little bit more, um, promiscuous so to speak they will accept their own pollen but they can they can accept it from their neighbors as well so uh you know that's that's a good uh, uh bit of the of the, the the things that are really easy to save at home and so in, in a lot of these
0: cases it's as easy as just allowing them to bolt so to speak and put up the flowers that give the pollen and allow the exchange of genetic information either within themselves or within a narrow genetic pool around them. And then they start to put out seeds and some of these look very different and collecting them can be more difficult with some than with others. What are, what's some advice on like what to look out in characteristics and try to identify which part of the seed even to save because it's not always super clear.
1: Yeah. Well, so, um, I mean, so the easiest is dry beans, right? If you have a black bean, um, that's your seed, you know, and and you're done right? Uh, it's the same thing that you eat. So that's uh, that's very easy. Um, green beans are maybe like the next level up because um, you're eating the seed at an immature level. So you just have to get to the dry bean phase of those green beans. Um, and uh, that's honestly pretty easy for most of us. I, I challenge anybody to grow a row of green beans and to collect and eat every single one. Um, so as I alluded to, Right, that's the, 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 the gone bys are, are your friends in this case. So um, you know, you plant a row of green beans, you eat them for uh, you know a few weeks in the summer, and then it's time maybe, uh, for me, I put my fall carrots in right after my green beans, so I pull up that first planting, most of it, but I leave a few plants on the end. And green beans are fine with that. You don't need a big population. If you save seed from just a couple individuals, that's totally fine.. Um, and so um, peas are similar, sugar snap peas, we, we just pick and pick and pick. Um, and then eventually it's late summer and there's some other things we're interested in the garden. And we think we've picked them all. And, and invariably we go back in the fall and you could shake the vines and you could hear the dry ones rattling and those are your seed. Now, obviously things like lettuce, um, you eat in the juvenile stage, right? You really eat before it enters enters puberty, which we would call it in, in uh, uh, you know adult maturity. And so, um, what you have to do is um, let it bolt. Now, a note on um, uh, learning from for everybody to learn from my mistakes. Uh, you know, one of the first things I did early on as a seed saver was, you know, you plant uh, ten lettuce plants in one bolt, um, and I thought, well, that's that's good. I can't eat that one. I'll just use that one for seed. Turns out that's a bad idea because what you're selecting for is early bolting. So uh you know right so you have to you have to be careful about what you're selecting for but the the lettuce plant will bolt and it'll have um it'll have a number of flowers at the top that will end, end up turning like into a little dandelion fuzz and um that's the one you collect i think the other big thing with lettuce is that um there're side shoots they're called tillers if you don't remember that it's okay they're just side shoots um but they they mature at a different rate, and so you don't want to t- try and wait for all of those side shoots to be mature. You just want that center one too, and they'll be you know they'll be nice and dry, and you can smash them in your hand, and they just turn into dry, fluffy seed. Um, and that's when you want them. The biggest enemy of that is fall rain or, or late summer rain, um, because it can uh, all of a sudden you'll have a big rain, and uh, there'll be lots of lettuce babies around your your mama plant. So that's that's a challenge. Uh, and then the other thing to think about with these things in terms of the part of the plant is, is maturity, right? So, you know, if your lettuce takes 45 days to be edible, it might take a hundred days to be, um, seed, same thing with green beans, 75 days for eating, but maybe 110 for, so, so this is the, um, you want to do these things with the spring planting, right? You know, you might plant green beans in July and I'm speaking in new England terms here for anybody who's, uh you know, listening, um, you know, adjust for your uh, location. But particularly in a place with a short summer like New England, um, for my July planting, which I can get a beautiful food crop of green beans from, um, that's the wrong one to get a seed crop from. And so once you've
0: identified and collected your seeds, tell me a little about some of the ways to store them to make sure that they last for as long as possible and you keep them clean and...
1: Ensure better success when it comes time to plant. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a great question. And you know, even if you're not going to save seed, and you're going to buy it, this is a great thing to make sure you know how to do because you can. You often can only buy as much seed as you might use for three or four years. Um. So. Uh, so storing it well uh, can save you some money. The other reason it's important is that um, with certain biennials. Kale is a very good example here. Kale is an outbreeder. Um, So it likes a big population, but kind of like we talked about before, some in certain circumstances, the first offspring from a a smaller population is okay. So I've had a situation where I've saved uh, kale seed from just a few individuals, say four or five. And in the long run, there will be what we call inbreeding depression. So, uh, you know, they're not happy by, um, by by sharing the genetic material amongst a few individuals but that first year is fine well it turns out if you save kale seed from four plants for one year you get enough kale seed for the county right it's a lot yeah. of seed right i'm looking can...
0: at mine right outside my window right now and it is loaded right
1: right you get it's huge so um if you you save uh i've saved mason jars full of kale seed and if you know how to store it well um, then you can, you're good for a decade, maybe, um, depending on the size of your garden. Um, the other thing you can do with that is sprout it, by the way, microgreens in the winter. Is it, is it? But, um, but th- back to your question about storage. Um, so seeds, by and large, you got to put them away dry, and, they, and then they like cool, dry conditions. Um, and I want to put some caveats around that, that. A lot of people will naturally say, well, oh, good. So I'll put mine in a food dehydrator. And I've had several questions about that at different points. And the thing you have to remember about your seeds is that they are alive. So it's not like an herb that uh, it's a cutting that's dead that you're going to just preserve. These are still alive. So they do need a certain amount of uh, humidity um, within them to, to stay viable. Um, you're just they're just dormant, but they're still alive. So a food dehydrator is not a good idea. A, um, in New England, a great place to dry them is uh, an October uh, family room with a wood stove going, because um, it's nice and dry, um, and that that works really well. Um, the um, in the book, I. I give a pretty extensive example of how I dry things in our screen porch. So I hang them upside down in the screen porch, which is nice. It keeps them out of the rain, but there's still a breeze blowing through there, and that, that works really well hanging upside down. You have to be careful in those circumstances about um, about sometimes they'll drop their seeds. Certain lettuce varieties will drop their seed, although some will hang on to it. So that's getting them in that dry place. Um, I call to know for certain things if they're dry enough Um, because if you put away seeds that aren't dry um, they'll be moldy you know when you when you open them up so with bigger seeds like beans I I call it the ping test you get a nice metal bowl and you drop it in the bowl if it pings you're all good you know if you get if it sounds like you dropped a pebble in there you're okay if it makes a dull thunk uh, you got to dry them some more Um, but um, and at that point You put them in a cool, dry place. So we use a guest room, a closet, an unheated guest room that's probably um, through, so the winter is 55 or 60 degrees and dry and dark, Uh, and that works really well. Um, You can freeze them, um, but you just have to make sure that they're nice and dry if you wanna freeze them. Also, accessing them once they're frozen is a challenge because you don't wanna expose you know, if you take, uh, I'll, I'll again use a mason jar example. If you take that jar out of the freezer and open it up, there's really cold stuff in there that's going to condense moisture. So you either have to let it warm naturally, or some people will seal them in, in little individual plastic packets, so you can take out, open the mason jar, pull out one year's worth of seed, and then close it back up. Um, so that that's a that's a good way to do it. I've had a number of questions. People ask me questions about well, the garage. Um, and um, or kind of unheated uh, mud rooms. We call it a mud room in Vermont. I don't know uh, what other people call it, but a room where you know, kind of an anteroom coming into the house. Um, and you just want to watch big temperature swings because uh, a garage, for example, might be uh, 20 degrees in the winter and uh, you know 85 in the summer and humid. Um, so that's just something you have to watch. So I, I tend to be cautious about those conditions. A root cellar. Many people ask about root cellars. A classic root cellar is too humid for seed storage. Um, So a place where you would store potatoes and carrots is too humid. Um, Our root cellar is not humid, um, but we, the way we deal with that for the food is that we put them in kind of sealed plastic bins um, and that works well for them. So uh, I've never done it, but I think I probably could store seed in my, in my, um, in my root cellar. uh, But most of the time, if you have a good root cellar, not like ours, but a good one, uh, it will be too uh it'll be too moist um, so that's there's some things to think about in storing seed some seed will store longer that's another point that um certain seeds will um will not be good even in the second year, so the classics are onions and parsnip um and then some seeds last forever corn and certain wheat um, and grain varieties last uh, hundreds of years reportedly um, and um, the uh, uh, my uh, my mentor uh, my seed saving mentor will Bonzel uh, tells a great story about how he was looking for a certain variety of corn and And uh, he couldn't find it, and somebody found an ear under their bed or something. I'm sure I'm I'm mutilating that story in some way, but uh, the spirit of it is the same, is that there is this ancient ear of corn that he planted and got some viable seed from. So some things can last a long time. Beans, for example, last five years or more if they're stored well. Um, And if you're not sure, what you just do is a germination test, right? So you get a little soil, or even better, I don't like to waste good garden soil in February when I'm trying to figure this all out. So you just get a little bit of... um, Maybe uh, newspaper um, and dampen it with some some uh, some water and just keep it moist for a few days with 10 seeds, say, on there and you see who sprouts and who doesn't and then you'll know. That's a good way to know if you need to order more seed or not. Sure, sure. So tell me about some of the ways that you can improve seed germination from the ones that you've saved. Well, so proper storage is is the big one, number one. mm mm-hmm. um, the other thing is um, doing all the seed saving, right? So if you have, uh, you know, you might get a lower germination. For example, if you have that smaller population of certain, of certain plants, you haven't done well. Um, different plants will like different uh, conditions for germination, so the conditions of germination in particular. So peppers are very uh, notorious for liking it really warm. Um, you know, they like it 80 degrees tomatoes are a little bit less than that. And, um, you know, uh, cabbage crops, you know, uh, will, will often do just fine coming up in coolish, coolish soils. So it's, uh, it's really interesting to put a flat of like, Uh, uh, cabbage, onion, uh, peppers, and tomatoes, uh, just a seed tray of each of those, and put it in kind of a marginal, maybe a high 60s condition. And I I do this every year because this is how I start my seeds indoors. Uh, And uh, the peppers are are, uh, kind of like uh, I was when I was about 16 years old trying to wake up for school in the morning. They were... uh, (laughs) reluctant and a little bit um and the 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 chinese cabbages they they pop right up and right they think it's spring hey it's ready to go what's well, you know let's do right. it so, anything other uh, than freezing really yeah that's right right they're fine with it so it's really individual to to the um to the to the plant.
0: yeah okra was the other one that i really had trouble sprouting earlier than when the heat started to set in this year and oh. Yeah. Now it's doing really great and I've left it outside for quite a while. They're starting to get big, but yeah, it's, it, it makes a big difference. The the germination from the temperature that you, you plant them at and have you experimented much with uh, heated trays or, or heat mats below your trays?
1: Yes, absolutely. I use heat mats um, for my, um, for particularly for, for peppers and tomatoes. Um, the, um, and that works that can work very well. The challenge is um, it can also dry out your soil, soil a lot faster. So you just have to be um, diligent about uh, making sure the soil moisture is um, is consistent. Um, so that's an important piece.
0: All right, so now that we've got the basics, let's take the next step and talk about biennials and some of the other plants that maybe are a little bit more tricky the first time you try them.
1: Yeah, well, so biennial. So all, a, all a biennial is is um, something that requires. And I'm gonna, uh, um, I'm gonna use a, I'm gonna because I'm a New Englander. I have to put air quotes around this. That requires a winter before yeah. it will create seed, <laughs> right? And so, it doesn't necessarily require a New England winter. As a matter of fact, sometimes a, a mild winter is uh, even better. Um, but in any case, they have to go through a winter. So. Um, carrots, parsnip, a lot of root crops, um, because that's what that root is doing is basically putting away nutrients that it will use the next year to send up the seed stock. Um, uh, And then most, most, not all, but most of the um, cabbage family, so uh, kale, cabbage, uh, and then turnips and rutabagas, um, things that are uh, again those those root root vegetables. Those are biennials. Um, there are um, this can f- be uh, uh, when the first time you try them can this can be the thing that says okay this is too complicated I'm not going to do that. That being said, there are some easier biennials that you can get through uh, the winter that um, that I definitely encourage people to try. One really easy biennial is parsley. Um, And this is how I would recommend people growing parsley, is that even now in the the summer um, in New England, I have parsley growing not in the ground, but in pots. Um, Because I'll take a cutting of it as I need it here and there throughout the summer, and then I'll just bring it inside through the winter. And that inside experience in my house with cooler temperatures and less light will be plenty of a winter for that parsley in order to allow it to um, go out the next spring. And then I'll take it out of that pot and I'll put it in the ground and I will get plenty of parsley seed. Um, Parsley is an, uh, an outbreeder, it likes big populations. So you need at least two, you can't save it from one, but I've never had a problem from parsley, I mean, parsley, it's, it's a green herb, right? It doesn't have that many moving parts. So if it's a little less vigorous because I saved it uh, under suboptimal conditions, meaning not with 500 other parsley plants, but just with one or two friends, um, that that's a real easy one to grow. Um, and the parsley seed is actually very, um, very, uh, it's flavorful as well. You can grind up parsley seed. And while we're on parsley, a less common plant that um, is a nice uh, way to uh, flavor soups and stews and whatnot that is totally a good biennial to save is cutting celery. Um, so there you can get celery that is has a, a habit that's a lot more like um, parsley than it is celery, but it has the same flavor as celery. It tastes like celery. And so that you could grow the, to seed the same way as I just described for parsley. You know, you grow the plant the first year, bring it inside, put it outside the next year, and then you get tons of seed and you can either plant that seed. And in this case, it's a lot easier to save cutting celery seed than real. Real celery is very fussy and it's hard to get through winter because you've got that big, and I shouldn't say real celery, but our standard, our common celery. Um, but you can you get all the greenery and the um and the seed from the cutting celery plant and then you can use either one of those to flavor um flavor your food so that's that's a really nice um easy biennial the other easy biennial is um is kale and um and the uh and again I'm going to show my region of the world here because in new england um the hardest thing for New Englanders, for some biennials, is getting them through the winter without, without dying in the fields. Um, kale's pretty hardy, and sometimes it will, um, it, will um, it will live through the winter if there's a good snow cover in New England. Um, even if the top doesn't live through the winter, sometimes it will sprout from the bottom. So if you leave the root in the ground and you're patient for a little bit, you'll get sprouts there and you actually get a fair amount of seed that way. Um, if you live in a more temperate climate, um, kale is, uh, very easy to, to, um, cause you don't have that problem of getting it through the winter. Even if I was in say Pennsylvania or Virginia compared to Northern Vermont, um, kale would be a real easy biennial. Again, that's a, that's an outbreeder. So it lets it a bigger population, but you know, it kind of does okay, particularly even in that first generation with a smaller population. Hmm. One very common um, or uh, too common biennials that sometimes get saved even when people don't want them. And I don't don't know what this is like uh, elsewhere in the world, but certainly in New England, um, parsnip um, often propagates on its own. Parsnip is very hardy in the ground and um, so much it's there's they call it poison parsnip here in New England. It's actually really feral parsnip. It's um, probably some cultivated variety of parsnip that's just gotten out into the ecosystem. Um, And it does just fine propagating on its own so well that it's a little bit unwelcome. Um, And then the other one's carrot. The biggest problem with carrot of course is queen Anne's lace carrot does well on its own too. Um, The problem is there's a a wild carrot called queen Anne's lace um, that makes it very difficult to, uh, to keep your carrot crop pure. So even if you just have a little bit of infiltration of queen Anne's lace pollen, you'll get these kind of thin white carrots that aren't so good. Um, but getting it through the winter isn't so, so bad. Where you get into more difficulties with biennials is um, particularly when you have a a hard winter like we do is when you have to store the root through the winter. So things like uh, beets, beets you have to bring that root inside and keep it through the winter and then plant it out next spring without the spring rotting. The spring is that little place where the root meets the greens, right? That's the kind of the epicenter of the plant's life. And uh, that's got to, that's got to be uh, intact. Um, so that's that. That's what can make uh, biennials um, a challenge. The other thing is garden space. For home gardeners, garden space makes biennials a challenge because, you know, a lot of us don't have a lot of space. So we don't necessarily want to commit all this room to growing it out. That being said, though, um, if you, you can grow a food row of, say, beets um, and just, take a couple of roots and save them for seed. Um, and then the next year you'll need, you'll need a little bit of um, you'll need a little bit of room to let them grow to their full height. But uh, by and large, you don't have to spend a whole year growing, you know, beets. You could just, it could be part of your food crop in that first year is what I'm saying. They don't need their special place.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so with, with biennials kind of covered and, you know, one of the things that I'm noticing is you're talking about your wintered specifically, whereas Like here, I planted some beets back in November, and they're actually all going to seed right now after I've gotten quite a good harvest out of them. I think for places that don't get such a harsh winter, worrying about bringing them inside or having to, you know, give them special protection during the winter is much less of an issue as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. so uh, all my neighbors, um, if they could hear you speaking, they'd all be jealous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's the, I've
0: lived in those climates
1: too. I, I, there's, there's challenges and benefits for both. Actually, that's true. And so there are, um, you know, when you're growing something a little bit out of, um, and this isn't quite a seed saving example, but it's a poignant example nevertheless. Um, we have a super hardy peach tree and we're too far north for any of the pests that really assail peaches in, in earnest. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. So um, now that peach tree might only last a few years and die um though it hasn't so far but if you can there it pays off to kind of both live within the climate you're given and accept it for what it is but also to explore the boundaries of that sure. because it, Especially it because can pay the off.
0: boundaries are changing too
1: <laughs> well that's actually a very good point the boundaries are changing um but that's kind of i think that's a somewhat um I'm sidestepping into what I think though is a very important point in my book is that you'll read things about seed saving and while they're going to be true if you're reading them from a reliable source, you have to remember that by and large the people who've written books about seed saving are doing it from a standpoint of what a seed company needs for purity and germination rate and true to type and those kind of things. And what the home gardener needs for those things aren't the same. So, um, so in, in terms of the concept of exploring the edges of what's possible, um, which is kind of the, the theme I'm, I'm picking up on here, um, it's really important that if you pick up like a textbook um, book about seed saving, it will say, for example, that for, uh, for beans, that you need at least 12 yards of space between them in order to ensure purity, right? You can't grow them right next to each other, it will cross-pollinate. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the truth is, it's not like um, there's a line somewhere where they cross-pollinate here and don't cross-pollinate there. This is a probability and statistic thing, right? So if you're a farmer growing 1,000 acres of bean seed, and there's a 1% chance that they'll Um, cross-pollinate, you have a lot more than uh, a thousand individuals in your plant field. So there's a lot of cross-pollination going on, right? Um, If you only have 15 plants and maybe you're in a little suburban garden where um, you only have 12 yards in your whole garden (laughs) and you totally can't separate, um, you could probably grow those beans next next to each other year after year and they won't cross-pollinate. So I'll I'll give an example. So I've done just this this same thing. And so I grow black beans for um, for burritos and et cetera. And then I grow this bean called the Vermont Cranberry. It's a little speckled, uh, kind of a brown speckled bean with red maroon speckles on it. Um, and I've grown them side by side for years. And for a long time, I was able, when I was speaking, able to say, look, I've never had a cross. Um, and then one year I, 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 darn it, I had a cross. Um, and it was a beautiful bean. It was a gray bean instead of black. And instead of maroon speckles, it had black speckles over a, a kind of this gray background. Hmm. And it was really pretty. And my thir- first thought was like, oh no, I got something that I didn't expect. But what you need to do is say, you have to stop and then say, oh cool, I got something I didn't expect. Right. Um, and maybe if that bean was beautiful enough, um, I could have planted it and gotten more of those. Um, so uh, as it was, I, I, I liked it, but not quite as much as I liked the things I was going for. So it just went in the chili pot with everything else.
0: Um, but, <laughs> That's the thing is like your mistakes can still be totally useful
1: and wonderful, even if it's not something that you're going to continue to do. Absolutely. And so, and to this day, I still grow those beans right next to each other and I've had one cross in however many 15 years or something. So, Mm. you know, and I can tolerate that. And it was just a couple plants, by the way, it wasn't the whole row. So sure. Sure. No no harm done. Probably the plants that are closest to each other. No. Yeah. And that's actually, that's true of, um, of, uh, Vermont cranberry beans tend to have a little bit of a viney habit. So even though they're bush beans, they'll kind of start to spill over into the other places. So that's a, you know, that's a, that's a danger all the time. But, um, you know, if you don't push those boundaries, so if I, if I, if I never pushed those boundaries, I, I, to this day, I wouldn't be saving seed. Cause in that, you know, in that, when that happened, I would have just stopped and that would be, that would be silly. Now there's an important caveat here. If, if I had, um, you know, my great grandfather's, uh, was a Native American who gave me his special bean from, um, you know, uh, the reservation that I couldn't get anywhere else. You better believe I would be isolating that bean. Sure. Um, Sure. That's a different circumstance though. Yeah. Right. So you have to leverage your circumstances so we can decide what we can tolerate as home gardeners. So you just have to, uh, you just have to keep that in mind.
0: Yeah. There's so much more room for experimentation and, you know, happy accident, so to speak, when you're doing it for fun and for your own use, rather than if you're trying to breed for,
1: you know, for, for market or for a farming context. Well, absolutely. And that's this, when you're, when you're saving seed, it just gives you one more way of interacting with your garden. Cause by and large, okay, what do we do to make our gardens grow? Well, we, you know, we, we add compost, we uh, weed, we think about spacing, timing of uh, timing of planning, et cetera. We look at pests, hopefully, you know, we're not using chemicals and whatnot, but, and then in the end, um, we get what we get. Well, if you can start selecting and say, Hey, some of these matured a little earlier in my short climate, maybe I should grow some more of those. And you do have to be careful because then you're not really seed saving anymore. You're selecting You're you're breeding a little bit, but again, as long if you're saving them for yourself or your friends and you told them what you did, then, um, that's just a whole nother, kind of way of interacting with your garden beyond the soil and the, it's really making the garden your your baby almost literally right because you're thinking about what those what you're planning and what's what's how it's going to come up and it's, it's really a beautiful way of, of interacting with your garden beyond just the soil and the pests and all that
0: well to explore that a little more and this is a personal question for me because it's something that i've struggled with in the past Let's explore some of the other plants that can frustrate beginning seed savers, plants like, in my case, squashes, that are harder to breed true from seed, and one of the ways that you can do that.
1: Yeah, well, squashes. Um, so it's important to know with squashes that there's actually um, five different um, uh, varieties of squash. Well, variety is the wrong word here. We, we didn't do some of the vocabulary, so let me go back to that. Um, a species a species by and large is anything that can uh reproduce with uh another member of that same species and produce fertile offspring um don't don't take that to your biology professor but that's a pretty good for us that's a good working definition <laughs> um so um there are roughly five different species of squash um I'm only gonna be able to speak with authority about three of them, because those are the only three that grow in my climate. Um, so we'll just dwell on those three. Certainly in Spain, the others will grow. Um, but so there's, um, these are all cucurbits. There's the Maxima species. So those are, tend to be pumpkins um, and uh, things like uh, uh, Hubbard squash. Um, there's the uh, Pepo, which tend to be summer squashes and some smaller pumpkins, so um, zucchini, uh, the yellow crookneck squash, and then some of the small, like New England pie pumpkins, a common uh, pie pumpkin, um, that's a pepo. And then there's mashata, which is uh, butternuts. And so if you're growing, and and let's pretend for a second, I'm I'm fortunate here in this respect, because where I am, my neighbor's gardens are pretty far away. So for practical purposes, let's just pretend like, you know, you, you don't have nearby neighbors with gardens. If you're growing one Pepo, uh, one machada and one Maxima, uh, you're good. You can just let those plants um, pollinate uh, naturally and save seeds and and you're okay. The biggest thing you'll have to remember is for summer squash, um, you're eating them in their baby form. That's the kind of the definition of a summer squash is something you're, that's why it's summer, it's not a fall squash because you're eating it before the rind gets hard and well, the flesh is still young and sweet. So you have to save it to maturity. So a zucchini, I mean, again, if you've ever grown a zucchini and you've never had one go by on you, then I I, I, I wouldn't believe you. Um, but, uh, right, like you get these like seven or eight pounds zucchinis, these gigantic oh, things. Oh, size of your um, thigh, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. The, the, that's where the seed uh, is going to come from, right? Um, so other than that, if you only are growing uh, – so if you had a zucchini – uh, uh a jack-o' lantern pumpkin uh and a uh and a butternut, you're 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 done. Um and as a matter of fact, around at our place, there's not too many different um uh butternuts that do well or machadas I should say that do well in, in northern uh New England. So uh some of the big crookneck um, kind of butternut family squashes that grow Pennsylvania, Virginia and South uh, don't do well here. So I never worry about the purity of my um, butternut seeds. I just, I always let them open pollinate each other. For other, um, for the other varieties of cucurbits, like um, like zucchini, for example, that's a challenge because I grow zucchini and uh, um, uh, a pumpkin that are both pepos, right? And so I have to I, I can't just let them pollinate each other. So the easiest thing honestly to do is to hand pollinate. And I don't know if that's something you want to go um into detail in, but it's 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 not it's not as hard as it sounds, and it kind of helps you get to know your plant a little bit better. Um, but you just need to hand pollinate them and um and then you can you'll actually it's pretty easy to save things with some purity.
0: Yeah, I'll leave that one for The listeners to check out in your book, but it's definitely worth getting into if this is a vocation that somebody wants to start taking upon themselves and start experimenting on their own place. Because, like, like we've been talking about the varieties and and just the joy of being able to do this, especially when you start getting into like breeding and trying to create things for your garden and for your plate that are new or hard to come by in other places and experiment with that. That like that opens up a
1: whole new world as well. Absolutely. And, and ultimately it, it's not difficult at all. It just takes a little time. So, and that's the thing about a garden is that, you know, uh, certainly I can think of mine as our family's grown um, and our jobs have changed and different things. Sometimes that, you know, I'm hand pollinating all sorts of squash and sometimes it's just like not the year to do that. Right. So, um, so yeah, I would encourage people if this isn't the year to check it out, although I think for many people, this is the year to check it out because we're having, most of us are having a lot more time at home than we were used to. Definitely. Um, <laughs> right <laughs> well so james that gave
0: me uh, answered personally a lot of my questions and can you tell our listeners where they can find out more where they can get the book and how they can get in contact with you
1: yeah um so um my my email is very simple it's uh jim.ulager u-l-a-g-e-r gmail.com and i'm happy to uh to uh you know chat with people about seed saving it's one of my favorite things to do the um the book is from New Society Publishers. It's called Beginning Seed Saving for your Home Garden, and it's um, it's available at you know uh, um, uh, just ger- Amazon and other uh, uh, booksellers. So uh, it shouldn't be too hard to find. Um, so uh, I you know people should check it out. There's there's lots in there that's uh, pretty practical that um, can really help you on your first few steps.
0: Excellent. And I'll also be sure to put the link to get the book directly from the New Society website so that all of the money goes to them instead of funnels through Amazon in the process. Um, I would appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. And James, it was such a pleasure talking about this with you. I really hope we can stay in touch because I am undoubtedly going to have more questions in the future as I try out some of these
1: experiments. Absolutely. And uh, if I don't know the answer, we'll both learn something. It'll be great.
0: Fantastic.
1: All right. Well, thanks so much for making time. Take care and we'll be in touch. Sure, thanks. Bye. Bye. All
0: right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info@abundantedge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform. And I'll catch you on next week's show.